to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh! who knows, and goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Welcome to Unqualified. Graham is here. My highly esteemed co-host G is here. G, some weeks, this um, this thankless job of creating a podcast is difficult because you got to scrape the bottom of the barrel for facts and excitement. Uh, this is not one of those weeks. <laughs> uh, our job has been made quite easy uh, by the beautiful sport that is Formula One. G, where'd you watch? How did it hit you? What what stood out? Silverstone. Let's go. Yeah, this was a race from home this time and arguably one of the best races of the entire season, top to bottom, minus a couple of scary crashes. But fortunately, the drivers involved, by and large, all okay. Uh, Net, net, has there been a more exciting race this year? I mean, even like rain races included. I mean, I'm always a sucker for rain race and and the strategy dynamics that that plays into. But I mean, from wheel to wheel across the grid with different drivers all vying for spots in the points uh, and, and also some some characters who aren't normally uh, in that bunch. Yeah, it had to be the top race for, for sure. So great to see Silverstone deliver yet again. Uh, and, and I guess just as a brief, brief recap of the weekend, started off with a in the terms of the race, started off with some chaos lap one. Multiple drivers taken out, including Joe, Russell, Albon, um, Sonoda, and really the most severe impacts being on Joe and Albon, but both okay, announced so pretty quickly after the race. And the contact ultimately caused a red flag. Um, and ulti- on the restart, incredibly exciting damage to multiple drivers, Leclerc, Perez, and a bit of wheel-to-wheel contact. Subsequently, Verstappen picking up some damage. Uh, Perez ultimately having to pit to get a new front wing, while Verstappen stayed out with some floor damage and slowly pulled him back into the midfield, while Leclerc seemingly was able to maintain a stellar pace and looked like he could have even won the race had it not been for, once again, some questionable Ferrari race strategy. And uh, Mercedes, after much talk about upgrades coming into Silverstone and a return to some more traditional European tracks pace has appeared to improved significantly so much so that Hamilton was on pace to win this race before that safety car came out. Um, younger tires arguably had the pace on both Ferraris. Dude, I wish you Um, would have, I wish you um, would have it. I mean, it was set up for a quite a, quite a stand there at the end. So we, we were a bit robbed of that. And then, you know, Perez coming from the back after the wing damage on a go long strategy, pitted under safety car and and put himself in contention to to nearly win the race. So props to him. I don't even think he got a mention on the Sky broadcast until he was in like fourth. Yeah, it didn't no mention until he came up after the safety car. And they're like, oh yeah, he's like fifth place. Like that's pretty good. Like maybe he can do something. <laughs> like yeah, that's good. Thanks for letting me know. The classic, the old backdoor cover from Perez, yep, just kind of yep, just looming. Just, just snuck in there. Um, and and out of all of the safety car, Leclerc being the first driver not to pit, 
staying out on on hards and <laughs> the ultimately disa- caused the disaster class returns. <laughs> uh, another Monaco episode, leading him to fall the fourth, while uh, Alonzo and and fifth and Norris and sixth were both the the ones to take on points for their team. And Verstappen finishing the race with a bit of a wheel to wheel with uh, with Schumacher. So uh, Schumacher getting taught some some lessons. Somebody I saw somebody on Twitter was like, if you had told Max after the crash with Lewis last year at Silverstone that he would be duking it out with Mick Schumacher in the home straight the next year, he probably just wouldn't have shown up. <laughs> <laughs> he would have hung it up right there after yeah. the championship. Yeah. 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 And uh, and I think the biggest news of all, Vettel and Magnussen both finishing in the points, Schumacher picking up his first points of the season in eighth place, and both Haas cars, points finish. So well Kudos. done to them. Yep. Kudos. Um, so lots lots to talk about, both on track as well as off track. Where let's, do we start? Let's just start with the race itself. Uh, pretty dramatic crashes. Once again, putting safety in the spotlight. Most importantly, improved safety for the cars, the tracks. Uh, what was your takeaway from the the series of events and and the carnage of lap one at Silverstone? I, I think Carlos Sainz said it perfectly in his post race press conference, um, where he basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, "Look, the S the FIA gets a lot of shit for a lot of different things. You know, consistency of enforcing." you know, driver, uh, track rules, track limits, um, overtaking rules. But at the end of the day, man, their number one job, and it is a difficult one, is to just keep dudes alive. <laughs> and that's a long-term objective. It's not just a single-year single year thing. It's a long-term mandate. And look, got to give them credit. Like, they're doing a pretty damn good job that somebody can literally flip an F1 car before a high-speed turn, flip it into a gravel pit, head down, have it skid 100 feet, over a t- dig into the ground, flip over a tire barrier, into a fence, and then rest between the barrier and the fence, and the driver literally is able to do press later in the day. Like, it's because of many things, right? It's because of the philosophy they have for the distance between the, ed- the, distance between the edge of the track and barriers, the way they've designed those safety fences, the, the way they designed the halo on the car to protect the driver's head, like everything that they've done has been very deliberate and added up to a scenario where that can happen and somebody doesn't die. And I just don't think we should overlook that. Uh, they deserve a ton of credit. And I just don't think that it, it's like this. It's the, it's the whole, uh, the holder in a, in an American football game. It's like that syndrome where you, you literally, nobody notices you unless you fuck up and they deserve a ton of credit when they succeed, and this is a a flagship performance by the FIA, that that can happen, and a dude literally is in front of a camera later that day. Uh, so it it's a great, you know, obviously everybody's super glad to see he's okay. I, I think that somehow out of all of that, the FIA got less credit than George Russell, and that is weird to me. <laughs> That's weird. Massively, me. massively less credit. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I think fortunately from the the F1 company standpoint, look, they planned the Tech Talk series well in advance. And so I think they were doing it on the heels of the 51G crash last season. But interestingly enough, it was entirely focused on safety. Uh, so that was fascinating to, to see. But 
in other press conferences after the race, multiple drivers, Max included, referencing, you know, how important the halo is. It, it's clearly saving lives. Undisputed. I So at, at this point, is it cl- safe to say that the halo is obviously a win and like this is settled science? Like, do we need to keep referencing this in every post-race press conference after a, a serious crash? Like, is this well established now? Yeah, but the only the only drawback of the halo that I've heard anyone that you if you can pick one, the one that people usually point out is that it could in certain instances prevent a driver from escaping a car quicker, quicker, right? Like you've got more overhead. There was some kind of when you saw the Grosjean crash three years ago, like he kind of had to wiggle his way out. I would also contend though that the halo kept him from losing his head to begin with. So like, you know, it's kind of like you got to pick your battle. I'd rather be alive with a chance to escape than decapitated right but like the one criticism is that it could prevent a driver from getting out more quickly in a certain situation but i would say the risk that that presents is far outweighed by the benefit you get of just the chances that you're alive after the impact to begin with and i think that the joe crash is a perfect example of that it looked like in the uh in the replays and i tried to watch them as closely as i could the crash structure above the seat above the intake that is traditionally what has protected drivers heads when they flip it looked like that broke. If you if you look at the back of the car, the 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 unit the 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 unit above his head looked collapsed, and it was fully resting on the halo. If you if you see videos of like old McLarens, like in the Ayrton Senna days, like flipping over, they have that like triangle roll cage that comes up next to the intake above the driver's head, and that is always what's scraping the ground when they're upside down. If you watch the replay of Joe's crash, that that piece was gone. And so there is good evidence to say that, like, if the halo is not there, his head is basically. Well, they probably you know, changed the, the rest of the design. The probably subsequent to the halo acknowledging yeah, that, point. like, this was the the weight bearing piece of the structure, et cetera. But still, I think it's a I think it's a good point. It's obviously a win overall, um, life saving device. But I do think it, it still raises some questions because you've seen of of how it can continue to improve because you've seen some instances, the the Grosjean crash where potentially getting wedged in between pieces of the barrier, right? I think Botas even said, had there been a fire in the way that Joe was sitting upside down, that would have been disastrous as well. And so I I do think there was a couple questions about the design of Silverstone still. One being why there is the gap between the tire barrier and the fence itself. Like he should have just come to rest on the tire barrier. Now that wouldn't necessarily save him from coming to rest upside down, but he was in sort of this very precarious position wedged between these two barricades and the, the fence that holds up the tire barrier has these like sharp corners on it. So, I mean, when you talk about potential damage to a helmet, so like that was a weird one. And well, also how, how many minutes did it take them to extract him? I mean, more than it would take to be burned alive. Exactly. Yeah. There's a fire. He's dead. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, the fire retardant, aspects need to be prioritized but weird spacing like that and where drivers can get wedged and and unable to get out of their vehicle i think need to be a a bigger focus but it also led me to wonder why they're still using like these much older more rudimentary tire barricades at silverstone while the tech pro barriers have become like much more prevalent at many of the of many of the tracks any thoughts there you know, uh, what I actually have learned relatively recently is that the science on whether tire barriers, which are older than Tech Pro, uh, 
but still they've evolved a lot. They've gotten deeper. They've changed how they space the tires. Um, the, the science on whether they're better or worse than Tech Pro is actually not settled. There's a, there's a notable drawback to Tech Pro, and I would actually point you to the Monaco McSchumacher crash where his car ripped in half, seemingly from a relatively low-speed collision with the wall. Uh, there, there's an argument against Tech Pro that suggests that Tech Pro grabs your car more substantially. And if you hit at a certain angle, you would actually prefer having a tire because a tire is more optimal as a combination of it'll push back and deflect and disperse the momentum of the car forward, but it will also absorb more impact than a concrete wall. So like I think we've talked about in a previous podcast, there's a trade-off on a straightaway. You'd rather have a really close concrete wall as a barrier because you're going to deflect off of it and it disperses less energy into the wall and more energy down the track and it saves the driver. Tech Pro is optimal when you hit something head on, like literally nose, like dead into a wall, driver facing forward. It is going to be the best at just absorbing the most energy, full stop. Because there's no lateral force to necessarily be grabbed. All of it is perpendicular. It's just all perpendicular force. But when you have a combination of the two, there's a solid argument to suggest that tires are still better because they optimize for letting cars still deflect, but also absorbing a lot of the impact. So better at like um, and, 40, 45 degree angles, like a moderate exactly. angle of impact. And so I don't know that it's necessarily one for one. Like if you looked at the outline of Silverstone and you said to yourself, you know, at this part of the corner, when a driver was more likely to come in head first, they use tech pro and they use tires for everything. Like they're picking what to use in each corner and kind of being consistent. So I don't know if it's that scientific, but I guess all I'm saying is like, it's not settled law. Tires are still really a really good barrier. Uh, and there's a lot of really good reasons. It's not just negligence on the part of Silverstone. There's a lot of really good reasons why you'd want to use them. Well, speaking of science, I, I think it's probably important to have more of the people within the sport also understand medical science, because one of the observations I had was at, at one point they show a, a clip of Domenicali talking to Joe after the accident. And then he subsequently, like in a in a show of support, grabs his neck and pats on his head and like the man was just in like a serious accident where they were investigating concussions and probably spinal compression and vertebrae damage. And you're just like grabbing, like you just don't touch a guy after a serious crash, particularly in the head and neck area. I just, I found that to be a little bit, uh, I guess I don't even know what the word is. Stupid. Like, (laughs) is, is there another way to describe it? I mean, the guy had been discharged. Yeah, it's probably a bit odd, but he had been discharged. So, I mean, come on. Yeah, I I guess. I mean, give him a day or so before you start shaking him again. You know what's wild is that there's actually a greater chance that Alex Albon is unable to race this weekend because of his crash than Joe. Because Albon actually was admitted to the hospital. He tripped a G-sensor, apparently, that was even higher than the ones that Joe tripped. He got you know, admitted on precautionary measures and now apparently has back soreness and may not race. I don't know how, you know, well, it was interesting in his crash, in in, in his crash, his was a lot more like horizontal rotation. And I think he had a impact one way to spin him one way. And then a very quick impact against Sonoda to spin him the other way. And so I I think that, yeah. And so I think that reverse of direction uh, is what probably tripped the, the G sensor. So yeah, you never know what it's, it's going to be. It's wild. Not all crashes are created equal, and you, you, of, of course, and like you can't just kind of go by the eye test of like how violent did it look. 
Like if you ever if you go back and watch like Ayrton Senna's the crash that killed him at Imola in the nineties, if you watch the video, it doesn't look that violent, right? Like which just goes to show that like safety is just the culmination of so many little things done well and done consistently over a really long period of time. Uh, and yeah, clearly we're seeing the fruits of that after a lot of really hard work in the 2000s and 2010s. So, so now that I, I think we've sufficiently covered and praised well-deservingly. So the efforts of the FIA to improve safety, I think it's uh, I, I think we should also now turn to the man who is even more highly praised for his selfless act of sacrificing his own race to check on the health and safety of his fellow driver, uh, Mr. Consistency himself, Russell, uh, highly acclaimed for jumping out of his car, running over to Joe. Maybe the better question is preceding the accident itself. Who was actually at fault? Because as you watch the broadcast, it was a bit it was a bit unclear. Uh, I would have thought Gasly caused the accident, but upon watching the the driver cams, I'm not so sure. So what's your take? Who is actually at fault for the accident in Silverstone, Russell or, or Gasly? I, 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 I smell you trying to put Russell at fault to poo-poo his heroics and the credit he got on the broadcast. No, not at all. Not, not, <laughs> not, not, not I, by any means. Look, I, okay. I, 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 I see what you're getting at and I don't disagree. I think Gasly probably got the lion's share of the flack up front. If you look at it objectively after the fact, it's kind of a bang, bang thing. I'm kind of hesitant to assign anybody total blame. It's just one of those things where cars got three wide. Gasly saw a gap and went for it too late. Russell tried to cover, didn't even see he was there. There was a there was no room for three cars in that turn, and it was just kind of an unfortunate bang bang. Maybe I give sixty percent of the blame to Gasly, forty percent to Russell. Russell was clearly the one that turned his steering wheel off of his racing line, but to put an expectation on him that he is supposed to be able to know exactly where Gasly's tire is when Gasly hasn't gotten halfway up the side of his car and he's doing it that late in a turn—that's a tough ask at the beginning of a race when you got to check both ways. But Clearly, you disagree, <laughs> judging by the bewilderment on your face. I seriously disagree. And look, a lot of it was in jest in terms of his his gesture to go over to Joe. I think that was phenomenal sportsmanship. Uh, I, he deserves full yeah. credit for that in knowing what is more important wait, in the moment. Wait, but what, but but it, what did but he it, actually accomplish over there? What did he do? I, I have did no he, did idea. He just gave the he, stewards a thumbs up. <laughs> I have no idea what he truly intended to do, but the intention was there. And, and so he deserves credit for that. But if you watch that back, Latifi, both Joe and Russell got terribly slow starts. Russell was on hards. Latifi stormed through the gap. Gasly was relatively quick to follow. His car was halfway along Russell's car. I mean, his wing was easily halfway along Russell's car. Russell in his driver cam, you see him look to the right. You do see him glance to the left. I don't know if that was just adjusting his head back to sort of center point, but if he had looked in his left-hand mirror at all, he he couldn't have missed Gasly. I mean, he was practically sitting in the cockpit with him. And I don't know how things would have turned out going into the turn, probably poorly. Joe probably would have ended up in the gravel. But well, honestly, I don't know about... Both I don't know Joe, about sitting in the cockpit with him. That's a little bit of an ever. But he was there. halfway alongside him. So, I mean... Gasly's the, front right tire contacted Russell's back left. 
He couldn't after, have been halfway line. After Sorry. Gasly already started to break because Russell was turning in on him. But preceding that, he was halfway alongside Russell. Joe and Gasly proceed perfectly straightforward. Gasly turns his wheel to the left with a driver halfway alongside him. And you talk to you listen to any seasoned driver, they will tell you, particularly on starts, you don't make Don't change your you line. Tr- don't change your line. Don't try to make dramatic movements. He was the only one that did that with a driver halfway alongside him after another driver had a me- had passed him. That's fair. Honestly, there's there's no excuse. I place 100% of the blame on on Russell in this situation. It's I don't think you can see it any other way. And maybe in the moment it it looked 50-50, but I think the thing that struck me more than anything and now you may disagree given your um, milk toast stance on who was actually at fault. But I mean, <laughs> is it possible for like the British fans to possibly watch this and commentators more importantly to, to watch this sport objectively? Like even it seemed like not. every ways that they articulated the crash, it, they seemed intent on avoiding possibly ascribing any blame whatsoever to Russell. At one point it was like, Gasly started to come through the gap and then they made contact. Like there was no reference to fault on Russell's part at all. And, and so it just, it's hard to, you know, you have to question their, their objectivity in a lot of circumstances when that one was pretty clear after one look at the, at the driver cams. I I think you are overestimating the, the amount of time that Gasly had left to actually clear that gap. I Look, do I'm think not you're overestimating. I'm not, esti- I'm not saying he could have cleared it. The turn would have been a nightmare. An accident probably would have happened anyway. Yeah, which is my point, which is why I'm not sure he was entitled to that line. I mean, he was That's halfway alongside him. Is that yeah. not the rule? He was significantly alongside. I don't think he was halfway, but I'd have to go back and rewatch it. You go back and check. I Okay. He was damn near close. Certainly past the front wheel. So, so uh, to that point of ex- objectivity, I... I I do think it's interesting too when you watch the rest of the race because as Hamilton was in a position to potentially win prior to the to the safety car, I mean every commentator I mean I think they would have my question to you is how many of the British commentators would have pissed themselves had Hamilton won that race? I would have pissed myself if Hamilton would have won the race. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Who <laughs> Who uh, we've said so past Americans love a comeback story. This man hasn't won shit all year, and to watch him in a car that's bouncing all over the place come back and freaking grab a race, and better yet, perfect scenario, he's doing it to Ferrari and not Red Bull. I was hugely a fan of that. As soon as Max f- picked up that what turned out to be Yuki Sonoda's in plate or whoever, and and fell down the grid. The next thing I sent to all the group chats that I'm like in during races was I am riding for Hamilton so hard right now. Partially, yes, because I want to see Ferrari burn. But like, come on, man. Like, everybody loves a comeback story. Come on. Like, I yes, yes, the broadcast is biased. But like, is that really the is that really the lead story here? Or is it about Lewis almost very poetically coming back and taking his home, like literally the first race he's even competitive in this year, doing it as home Grand Prix on pure pace. I mean, dude, that would have been an awesome story. Awesome story. I a hundred percent agree with you. I was pulling for him as well and wanted him to beat both of the Ferraris, but you could just see the commentators so eager to, 
to tell their like pre-prepared narrative in the instance that that Hamilton won. Like you could almost see the script on the screen just that they were ready to read off exactly as you articulated the perseverance yeah. of the 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 adversity overcome in the last couple of weeks returning home except like you could just see it written in their voices or hear it in their voices and i just think it i think it is telling especially after a season that was as controversial and close as last year it it becomes abundantly clear where allegiances lie and where the broadcast is tilted. And as long as people know that going in and don't think that they're getting some sort of objective analysis, so be it. Enjoy. I mean, Karun Shandok isn't, is he British? No, I, I don't know. He his... had a pretty objective analysis of the drivers coming together as being bang, bang. Like, I, I think you're reading a little bit of your bias onto this analysis, if I'm honest, but I see your point. I think that bias and broadcasting is kind of inevitable and you just kind of have to embrace it as a part of the sport. It's true literally in every sport everywhere. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, then in just in terms of the, the British fandom, it also makes me go back to you know this race, obviously being a reminder of the controversy last year. And as well as the controversy at the end of the, you know, both in Silverstone as well as at the end of the season. And I just can't believe the number of fans that are still like grappling with the fact that Hamilton lost last season. I saw this like diatribe written online of, I don't know if it was his publicist or his brother or just some crazed nut, but it was like a 12 page essay about how Hamilton has been robbed and we need to like justify, like we need to rectify this wrong. Like it was some sort of like civil rights movement. And I was like, the guy just lost the race, right? Like there was, countless other controversies and bad calls throughout the season that led them to be tied coming into the last race. Any one of those things changes. The last race doesn't matter. And yet we're going to anchor to that one instance and like never let it go. Like at what point do you think these fans are going to to move on? I, I just tone that stuff out. I mean, it's like the fact that we're still talking about January 6th in the United States from a political standpoint, right? Like some people just need something to harp on, you know? Um, I don't really put much stock into it. Oh, well, that sort of was deflating. All right. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I don't have, a, I, I really don't have a reaction. Um, Cause I just try to ignore that stuff. I try and focus on stuff that's, you know. Well, in terms recent. of things that are a little bit more um, tangible, me maybe even measurable, one might say, um, after the race, Hamilton praised the wheel-to-wheel -wheel battle with Hamilton and Leclerc, particularly in Cop's Corner, and uh, took another dig, a subtle dig at Verstappen in the way last year played out, but lots of photos circulating after the race of a side-by-side -side of last year and this year. Pretty abundantly clear Hamilton actually made the corner this year. So, I mean, is it pretty settled that he missed the apex last year. And uh, why is he like bringing this back up again? Only to be, you know, in a more clear instance that he was arguably at fault already more than what the FIA had already ascribed. Wait, so the general consensus from all of that was basically in the public eye was that Max is an overly aggressive driver. And what a contrast when Hamilton's racing somebody like Leclerc, who is quote unquote fair. Your takeaway would be Hamilton actually made the apex this time. And that was the difference. Yeah, it seemed like Leclerc and Verstappen were on pretty similar lines. Meanwhile, 
Hamilton was nowhere close to the the white line in his com- contact with Verstappen and well into the apex this time. Dude, I, I don't disagree with you, but I also think we're splitting hairs. At the end of the day, we know Max is a more aggressive driver than Charles. Like, part of it is what I like about him. And so I, I'll take any criticism Hamilton has about the fairness or lack of fairness in contrasting one year versus the other. Because at the end of the day, I would also say, like, yeah, and last year, like, had you not run into Max, he probably takes the corner and goes into the lead of the race. And, uh, you know, if Charles is on fresher tires, he probably overtakes you in that corner and goes on to beat you. So, like, at some, you know, in some sense, you also can't argue with the results, you know? Like, Max is going to put you in a position where it's either crash or we, you know, it's either crash or I go ahead. And 75% of the time, he's ahead. And so, I like, you can say it's bullying, but at the end of the day, if other drivers keep coalescing and the FI doesn't enforce rules for him to do otherwise, then like good on him. He's playing the he's playing the game as it's written. So, fuck the haters. <laughs> well, as I was trying to to be a little bit more inflammatory, look at the end of the day, the speeds that these guys are going at, and to take a turn a foot or two different, it's I mean split second difference in performance. So I mean, well, my and I mean, dude. That the, the the car control truly. I mean, they said this on the broadcast. The car control of them to be that racy through that corner and then on the exit and beyond, it it was incredible. And that entire last sequence of racing after the safety car. I mean, I, there were several stand off your chair moments. I was sitting there again clapping Formula One for like this car design is phenomenal. People are exiting high speed turns and overtaking each other left and right. Like. The, the quality of the driving was great. There were guys getting shoved off the track. They weren't getting penalties thrown at them. They kind of let them play. The whole thing in general was just a huge, huge plus for me. So it was kind of hard for me to see anything particularly negative within that, if I'm honest. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit, because I do think as we look ahead to Austria coming up in this next race, uh, one of the two races that took place there last year, there was a number of five second penalties handed out because of First, I believe Norris pushing Perez off the track and then Perez pushing Leclerc off the track. And and that's at Austria, multiple gravel pits and, you know, a much more dramatic impact. Whereas here in Silverstone, I think you saw multiple instances again, Perez largely, I mean, first Leclerc diving on the inside of Perez, which caused some damage to both of them. Then you saw an instance late in the race where Perez pushed Leclerc off, allowing Hamilton to come through and then subsequently pushed Hamilton off to allow Leclerc back through. And at least as far as I understand the rules, if a driver is alongside, you have to leave space, which I presume means there has to be some distance between the outside of your tire and the white line that enables the other driver to have a portion of their tire within the track on the exit to maintain legality on the exit. But that clearly didn't happen on numerous occasions during this race. So I mean, do you think the the FIA is, while it led to seemingly good races, do you think that that is, a, I guess, an appropriate and fruitful enforcement of the rules, or do you think they need to do do more there and make sure that drivers on the inside aren't constantly pushing other drivers off the track? In which case, even if the outside driver made the pass, you would argue they have to give the place up because they exited the track. So I, I just don't know how that's a a workable kind of standard going forward, but what do you think? Is it worth the trade-off of the excitement in the race or or do they need to kind of crack down on inside drivers going wide in a turn? 
No, your, your comment about it not being a workable standard, I think, is the right way to think about it. And I say that as somebody who just expressed, I like the fact that they kind of <laughs> let him play. No, yeah. and, I, and I did as a fan, but I recognize that that is still not the workable framework for enforcing the rules. And it only you only get away with it on a track where the runoff is asphalt, <laughs> right? Now, last year in Austria, you're right, they had several gravel traps. A couple of people had their races ended or ruined as a result of similar levels of not, you know, no space given. So I guess the overall question is like, is it even tenable for the FIA if their policy was basically to mold the strictness of the driving regulations to the level of consequence that was presented by the actual track surface and whether being run off was actually going to ruin your race or not? Like, is that a workable standard? Right. So like you take a track like Paul Ricard, where every runoff is like that ugly ass red and white or red and blue painted asphalt. Right. Like nobody is going into a gravel trap unless you hit a wall at Paul Ricard. You're in the race. I don't care how wide you get run. Circuit of the Americas is the same way. Like if the FI goes to those types of tracks and says, we'll let them race, like we'll play a looser standard. And in places like Austria, we're forced to clamp down because the consequences are greater. Is that actually a workable standard? If they were honest about it and upfront, I think you have a similar dynamic to the situation of, of track limits, where in previous seasons they were articulating track limits on specific corners, whereas now track limits are universal around the track. So it is a more consistent standard. I think you get into a similar challenge if you say, well, on these corners, we're going to allow you to force a driver off but not on these corners. And, and so I, I think it just gets more complex to manage. And I still think you distort the outcome because what happens with a driver on the inside of a corner pushing another driver wide as he is maintaining more speed, increasing the odds that he exit that corner coming out in front of that driver. So you still get an unfair advantage versus if the standard is you have to leave like a tire's width inside the white line if you're trying to pass along the inside, then you're going to calibrate your turn in, your exit throttle to afford that much space. Otherwise, you're going to know that you're going to get a five second penalty and it wasn't worth the sacrifice anyway. And so I do think, honestly, like as much as we're Red Bull fans and in that one has to be accepting of a, a little bit more elbows out and bullying on the track in order to, um, you know, not be a self-hating fan. Um, I do think it distorts the the ultimate outcomes and and the sport would benefit overall if there was more clarity and more forcing cleanliness in the wheel to wheel because I think you saw multiple instances of Leclerc and Hamilton effectively battling on some of the most intense turns and both keeping it within within the white lines and, and I think they set the model and the standard as to what wheel to wheel racing should look like in F one. I agree. Per, objectively speaking, Perez probably should have been penalized for his overtake. Both on both, he should have been penalized on, when on, he pushed Leclerc both. out and when he put pushed Hamilton out. But damn, I'm glad he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he wasn't, man. Let the boys play, Gerald. Let him play. <laughs> as long as it benefits the Bulls, I'm I all give for a it. Shit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then lastly, I think we have to call this out too because 
on a similar note, um, while I think nothing he did was was illegal because I don't think Mick was truly entitled to space on many of the corners, particularly the the cor- corner heading into the home straight. I think I, he might have been though. <laughs> I don't know. I but, don't know. But you know, Schumacher chasing Verstappen last lap. Uh, I, I just love the the calculus that probably goes on inside of Verstappen's head and how he. He's yeah. racing the driver and their he, unique situation. He was he like, 100- bitch, I know you're just trying to get points. I dare you to try. He knew, <laughs> I, he knew man, you said, sa- go ahead, sacrifice your first points finish to try to get like two more points. I, I dare you. And, and he knew all along Mick was going to bail out, but um, yeah, yeah. He, he knows the situation. Well, I like to see Mick getting in there a little bit. Same. Getting roughed up, seeing what it's all about. Uh, and I think as he even said on the radio, his team radio was great where he's saying, yeah, you know, he he really threw the gravel at me there, and his his race engineers telling him like, yeah, he he really he really threw everything at you there, but you got some lessons to to take home with you. So I, I thought that was a cool a cool dynamic. Well, another uh, interesting piece of news: protesters on the track at Silverstone, I believe, lap one, correct? That is right. The stop oil movement. Uh, and if you want a good laugh, I would suggest checking out their website. Uh, the stop oil movement put about six people who were disguised as racing stewards in orange and black. Uh, they jumped out on, I think it was in sector two. They jumped out and sat down on the track, basically in the inside of essentially a blind left-handed turn in sector two. I can't remember which turn it was specifically. Uh, and I think the rumor has it. So this, So basically, if you watch the video, these guys literally go plant themselves on the track. The red flag has already been thrown for the crash. And so any cars that have come by them are basically already moving too slow for it to be like a real issue. But you actually, if you pause it, you can see Gasly go by. And literally the stewards are grabbing these idiots, these freaking morons by the arms and dragging them. These guys are like, they've gone completely limp. And the stewards are dragging them into the grass, desperately trying to get them off, uh, off the track. There were six of them. I think, yeah, all six were arrested. I think two of them are still in custody. They were four out on bail from what I read this morning. Um, But yeah, I mean, look, dude, like, obviously the way they expressed it is completely idiotic. Like you're putting yourself at risk, your life at risk. You're also putting drivers at risk. You're also putting everyone who's seated around the track at risk if you cause an incident and have a car go into a barrier at a place in the track where it's not normally supposed to or they're not planning for it to. Um, so like, yeah, obviously all of that is, is terrible. Uh, I think what's even worse is this general virtue signaling that we've gotten from some drivers, Lewis Hamilton included, where we're trying to show this balanced perspective of like, oh, well, we need more protesters like them and we want them to be expressing of their opinions and viewpoints and good for them. They just need to express it in a slightly different manner. Like, I have an allergy for like where takes lack nuance and like that take very much lacks nuance. And all you literally need to do is like five seconds of research into the record of the group that these people represent. And you'll be able to draw a pretty clear line between an environmental activist group and an environmental extremist group. And like, they are very clearly in the latter category. And if you, if you go back through the record, it's very obvious why they would be stupid enough to literally put themselves in the middle of harm's way to protest a race. Honestly, 
we're lucky we had Joe's accident because the headlines that we could have had that not occurred and guys gone ripping through sector two with people standing on the track could have been like existential for the sport. I mean, it would have been, there's no telling if the drivers would have figured it out in time. Absolutely no telling. And those morons were sitting there limp in the middle of the goddamn road. Oh, so stupid. So basically what I heard is you want the planet to die. Is that, is that <laughs> what I'm hearing? No. No. There's a difference between activism and extremism. And to me, <laughs> running out on a fucking racetrack during a live race is extremism. And that is like borderline terrorism. And, and absolutely just so stupid. Like, But it's a huge issue for tracks because you can't put like a physical barrier in front of every grandstand that and, and police the front of every single grandstand to ensure that it doesn't happen. Tracks are so big. There's so much space to police. Like, that's why you had the British police posting on social media leading up to the race. We heard guys were thinking about this. Can you help us root them out before the race? Because they knew. They knew they wouldn't have the manpower to stop it in advance of the race. They just couldn't cover that much ground. So it's a big problem, man, especially if it catches fire and other groups decide that this is a, as the sport catches more attention globally, if other causes decide this is a good way to get headlines, like that's not good. Um, and we certainly have talked about it a lot. I certainly have here. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, I think it's stupid on their part as just individuals and probably the idiocy in that reflects poorly on the move, whatever movement it may be. I mean, I'm not going to, I find it hard pressed to think a lot of people are going to want to associate with an organization that uh, does something so stupid just to create the buzz and the headlines. So yeah, it was pretty shocking to see that. Stop oil now. Are you fucking kidding me? Like you think next year, the entire globe is going to be able to stop their consumption of fossil fuels. Like take it, like literally take one economics class, man. Like this is just, God, this just it's it's extremism. It's a non-workable it's, proposition. Like I like this workable non-workable framework. I yeah, non-workable. <laughs> Very non-workable. Non-workable. Next. Uh, <laughs> um I think another one to hit on in the in light of Hamilton's success in this race was the comments from from Jackie Stewart about you know claiming that because Hamilton, you know, wasn't able to go out on top at the end of last season with a record breaking number of world drivers championships, he should just hang it up and and do music and do fashion. It's a, it's a sad sight to see him out here struggling in a, in a subpar car. Um, what say you agree with, with Jackie or, or disagree? I thought there was a brotherhood for people who had been knighted by the queen and uh, they wouldn't talk down about each other, Sir Jackie Stewart on Sir Lewis Hamilton, but uh, unfortunately not the case. So, look, man, I, I kind of put this in the same category as, like, old curmudgeons of the sport that I just don't think need a microphone in front of them. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, when we talked you? about it a little bit earlier, right, of, look, it, it would have been very poetic for, for Hamilton to win this neck-and-neck battle, break the record, hang it up before the rule changes and, and go do something else. Um, like, yeah, that would have, that would have been nice. But at the same time, I, while not being, you know, a, a Mercedes fan, you have to hang, you have to give Hamilton credit for wanting to come back amidst a rule change, help develop a car that is third best on the grid, taking the brunt of, 
experimentation and testing new parts on the car, all with this mindset of how do we now return it to first place? And so I think it's hugely admirable for him to come back, sort of live out this still we rise motto and and try to persevere. And, and I've always found it more impressive when drivers join you know, underperforming teams and help bring them to the promised land. I mean, that was why that was what was so appealing about Red Bull when I started watching was sort of after their years with Vettel and and they're well, the third best and Schumacher car. at Ferrari. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And so like those stories are so much more appealing again, that sort of underdog dynamic. And and Mercedes has that this year. Hamilton has that this year. And look, they are well on the path to becoming a highly competitive car with Red Bull and, and Ferrari. So similar to you, I, I think it was a silly comment and Hamilton deserves far more credit for staying in and, and doing what he's doing now than had he left on top with, with an eighth championship. Everyone loves a comeback. Everyone loves an underdog. Everyone loves a grinder. I'm not here for this. Kevin Durant, trade me to a team with two all-stars. Bullshit. I'm, I'm out. However, that being said, as a Suns fan, I would love it if Durant <laughs> came to the Suns. I mean, that would just be beautiful. Just forget everything him, I just said. Let him play, G. Just let him play. Yeah. Super team. Bring it on. Um, All right. Should we get to the race? Oh, wait. Before we do, I just want to give a quick shout out. Logan Sargent, first American F2 race winner. He's now third in the F2 championship. I don't think it got enough got enough uh, traction uh, in the general press or the American sports media over the weekend. Uh, and I think he scored, maybe other than Drogovic, who's first in F2, more points than anyone over the last three races. So he's kind of surging. So good on you, Logan Sargent. Sargent surging. Yeah. Also, great name. Like, very strong name. And, uh, yeah, Williams Test Driver, American-backed team. So uh, yeah, love to see it. So maybe he's taking uh, maybe he's taking Latifi's spot. Maybe Devries gets the gets the bench or, again. What do you think? Or or hey, Ricardo's spots up for grabs too. So yeah, uh. <laughs> that's true. We might have we'll we get, might have more than one opening we'll, up. We'll get to that. All right, to the race. Take us. There. All right. Well, I, I think we we already gave a bit of a highlight. We'll certainly talk a little bit more detail about each of the teams, but I, I think the headline has to be far and above all things Ferrari, team strategy, team culture. I mean, what the fuck happened? What are they <laughs> thinking over there? I mean, let's let's just let's just recap. First off, they allow signs to to stay in front for multiple laps despite Leclerc seemingly having the pace. Um they had given I do think in their credit gave given signs clear instruction as to the expected pace he needed to achieve gave him a few laps he didn't ultimately signs stood stood aside do you agree with that decision we'll go we'll go one by one here because there's plenty to pick through do you think it was right to the the way they approached the initial team orders around giving signs a window to to perform before asking him more firmly to step aside they waited too late but in this instance i can at least see what they were trying to achieve which was to make it between both drivers seem like their principles were more objective, right? And that we're giving Carlos a target lap time, and then if he doesn't achieve it, we're letting you buy. My issue with it is, what the hell is the team briefing for before the race? 
Like, those principles should be agreed upon before you get in the car over team radio. Uh, So the fact that they're trying to rationalize that to their driver in the race means they haven't prepared well as a team. So I can see I'm more empathetic on that one for what they were doing, but it doesn't excuse the fact that the discourse they have over the radio means they're just totally ill-prepared to do it. Yeah, agreed. I mean, ultimately, that's what we said with respect to to Verstappen and Perez as well, right? Like have an objective approach, an objective standard. But you would have think if that is effectively communicated in advance, you wouldn't have Leclerc on the radio screaming about how it's ruining his race and all of these things. He's got three laps, right? Whatever it is. He has X number of laps to deliver on the necessary time. He didn't move aside. But, and it would have been pure business. But you're right. There seems to be still a lot of jostling internally, which means it's not as clear and and well-established as maybe it should be. All right. Well, speaking of preparing in advance a, a team strategy for how a race might play out, including the um, not-so-random occurrence of a safety car relatively late in a race, which I believe, given all of the race, like has probably happened almost every race this season, given some form of either crash or reliability issue. Leclerc, first place, recently put on some hard tires. He's coming around the 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 turn right before the pit entrance is a little bit after um, notified that there's going to be a safety car. His team tells him to stay out while subsequently ever every nearly every driver in the top 10 after him pits to heart to soft tires and he's left to to fight all these other cars on soft tires for the remainder of the you know 15 laps or so. So what was the what was the rationale for them? I mean, was it possibly the right decision? Gerald, I tried so hard. To, I, 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 I was thinking about the podcast as the race was wrapping up, and I was like, man, I'd love to come up with like a cogent perspective on why, defending Bonato's statements about why Ferrari did what they did. There, is, there literally isn't one. You would think out of the 1,000 people that these teams employ that they'd have one guy who was literally the safety car contingency guy who was responsible at any given point in a race he can, in two seconds, articulate what is the right move in response to a safety car if it occurs now. Especially if you have the two lead cars in the race, when that decision is the hardest and the most important. It would have made more sense had they pitted Leclerc and left signs out, and it would have made way more sense had they just pitted both and double-stacked him. They clearly had time to think about it. They made a conscious decision to leave the lead car out on the basis of not wanting to give up track position when there were 10 racing laps remaining and anyone who overtook you on the basis of your pit stop was going to be in an immediate tire disadvantage and be as worse off, if not worse, than, Cla- than Leclerc was. There's, there's literally nothing There's nothing you can say to rationalize it. And then they doubled and tripled down on it afterwards. Bonato gave Charles a stern finger-wagging talking to after the race to not disparage the team. And then continued in the media to defend their team strategy decision, which again makes no rational sense. If I'm if I'm Charles Leclerc, I am fuming after that race. Well, the t- so we'll get to the finger wag here in a moment as well, and, and unpack what we think was was said there. But I mean, the two arguments you hear are there wasn't enough time to respond, and the double stack would have put one or both of the driver, like arguably signs, in a more compromised position with 
Hamilton and and Perez behind, right? And so, but when you watch the driver cam of that happening, Leclerc passes Ocon on the straight. There's usually like a few second delay in between when the driver radio actually cues on versus when I think they're actually talking. And Leclerc nearly parks outside of the pit entrance, anticipating some decision for him to come in and pit. So I I find it hard to believe that they didn't have enough time to run out there. And how, to your point, how is it just not the default decision of yes, safety car pit? Like, why is that not the, the go decision? And then for whatever, maybe circumstance you, you walk that back, but that should have been the go-to decision. And, and I think they would have had a large, assuming they could have gotten all of the materials out into the pit lane to be able to execute the double stack. I think the window would have been sufficient. Even if signs comes out in third, at least they're all on soft tires and now they're able to fight for track position other than leaving your guy leading in points just to basically drown amidst the rest of these cars. You should have a constant house view that late in the race as a lead car. What is the break point in terms of the number of laps remaining in this race where I now value track position over a tire advantage. You've got to have a house view on that. And to me, in that race, it's probably less than five. And they had 10, which means they grossly overestimated the pace of the soft tire and were and were unprepared. Well, so then that leads to their, their next mistake, which was post all the cars pitting, coming out behind the safety car, Leclerc, then Sainz, then Hamilton, Oh, God. They come on the radio to signs telling him to basically back up by 10 car lengths in hopes that he'll play a little bit of, of defense because they were to enable Leclerc to, to warm up his hard tires again, as well as an anticipation, at least as mattered. they said over the radio, that they thought the hard tires would or the soft tires would outperform for only two laps relative to the hard tires, which I find very hard to believe that soft tires were only going to do better than hards for two laps. That seems odd to me. Again, I, I, I don't know for certain, but it seemed like a silly strategy. And signs basically came on and called that out immediately. I was like, this is stupid guys. Like I'm in a far better, like y'all made the mistake on the strategy call, but like, let's not make a bad decision worse by doing something stupid and giving up more positions and making it easier for Hamilton to pass both of us. Dude, Silverstone's not known as a high deg track. Like it, I don't know why they would ever think that there was a two only a two lap advantage of a soft over a hard. Like I, yeah, and honestly, good on signs for overriding them. Like I give him a ton of credit. He's done this a couple times this year now. He did it in Monaco with the whole dry tire switch, skipping over enters in the wet, and he's kind of overridden them on uh on that strategy call too and it was the right call for his race and ultimately probably the better call for ferrari in his post-race press conference he said he was like i knew that the better thing for the team was for me to get through charles quicker in a way that wasn't disruptive to his race either otherwise we were both under attack and we arguably aren't going to get the race win so he was right he was 100 right if i'm charles i'm equal parts furious at the team but also probably observing how Carlos has handled the situations and also probably looking in the mirror and wondering to myself, should I be a little bit more assertive with my team? Because clearly I can't trust them to make the right call and I need to lean more on driver intuition than maybe I've tried to in the past. You see a lot of the top drivers doing that, 
they don't always get it right, but they're right at least more than 50% of the time and additive to the team's strategy and do it in a respectful way. I don't think you see that from Charles very often. He, he'll he bitch and moan, but he generally goes with whatever Ferrari tells him to do. And I, maybe he's just got to look in the mirror and just say, hey, like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, so of nearly, I, I think of any driver on the grid, he seems to be more of a, of a company man than, oh, than anyone else. Like he is, he is red through and through. And, and I guess my question to you is, does that continue or, or do you think his mindset actually starts to change? I, I'm not convinced. I, I think it's hard pressed. I think he'll continue to be frustrated, but I, I do think there is a huge amount of entitlement in his mindset as him being the number one driver. So one, do you agree with that now that he is. signs is only 10 points behind and, and do you think Leclerc's mindset changes at all? And he starts to approach the relationship any differently. Dude, science didn't deserve to win that race. I'll say the unpopular thing. Like he, like he didn't have the pace. He was getting dropped by Leclerc when Leclerc had a damaged front wing. Like he didn't deserve to win the race. He didn't expect to be on pole. He came on the radio and was like, did that really get me pole? I wasn't expecting it. I was struggling the whole lap. He couldn't maintain lap pace. He got blown off the line in the first start by Verstappen. Like, he didn't deserve to win that race. Uh, so, no, I don't think Charles Leclerc is misguided at all and think he's the number one driver because he's faster uh, in almost all cases. Um, and yet, reliability and team strategy have basically worked against him in all cases relative to his teammate all year. Sainz has had far more self-inflicted issues that have prevented him from getting points. Charles is way more penalized by the team. And I, if I'm him, my trust in Ferrari would be eroding. And I think a couple more of these issues in the next three to four races, especially if Ferrari has the pace for him to be clawing points out of Max and he's not still able to, I think they could have a serious issue on their hands uh, in, inside the team. Well, and... And it raises an interesting point because I, I think there's instances of this at many points throughout the team's history. And even as of the last great driver pairing of Leclerc and Vettel, you saw an incredibly strained relationship, seemingly like a toxic team culture. So, I mean, and you, and I think you saw this manifest again, I don't know all of the circumstances. I don't know if the setup of the pit wall didn't enable more people to access the fence, but I found it striking that in Sainz's first career win, the the limited there was some interesting photos circulating of how few Ferrari team members were on the fence on the home straight congratulating him. I mean, there was more Red Bull team members, including I think Adrian Newey, on the wall congratulating Perez for finishing second. So I mean, what do you think the the culture must be like there? at Ferrari overall. And I, yeah, I just, wh- where does that lead them into the future? I can't think, I can't imagine it's anywhere positive. Yeah. I, they appear to have a really hierarchical kind of old school decision-making culture just from a very outside perspective, which I can't imagine is particularly effective in modern F1. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, they got to figure it out. I mean, right now they're a championship car, but not a championship team. And they probably have a championship driver. 
in LeClaire. I, it literally, the only mistake he's made all year was the Amala issue in the slow speech chicane where he spun. But um, I, that's it. I, so it's 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 the team now. I mean, it's pretty blatantly clear. Um, so yeah, and and it, and it falls on Bonato. I mean, first and foremost, but, but more than anybody. So well, uh, and and to that point, I mean, what what do you think his future holds? Because I, I guess personally, I've always particularly with the the Leclerc and Vettel thing, it became abundantly clear that they're unable to to manage driver conflicts, even when, as you said, Leclerc has consistently outperformed signs despite their points no longer reflecting that. And there seems to be a huge degree of indecision within the team on seemingly routine things. I I mean, I can't... recall the number of times that Leclerc goes on the radio to say something or ask a question followed by the race engineer saying like, hold on, we'll, uh, we'll be right back with you. We're going to talk it out over here. Like you listen to other teams and they have answers immediately. There are responses and Ferrari never seems to, to have one in the moment. So what, what do you think that means for Bonato's future? Is he really cracked up to be a, a team principal or, or do you think they're sort of, situated to move on sooner rather than later well look i mean squandering a fast car is arguably worse than just willowing at the bottom of the grid but being an otherwise decent leader with a bad car like i would put like yos capito at williams in that category now as a team principal who's probably largely effective in his management of things and his organizational management but just has a bad car I'll take that, you know, as a on a report card of team principal performance relative to somebody who squanders a really good car. And Ferrari has a really good car. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if he can't figure out how to decentralize decision-making down to people who have the right information to make the right calls at the right time and empower them to do it. I mean, look, people shit on Christian Horner for his, like, playing the politics all the time and how loud he seems to be on the sport and sometimes bitching and moaning and pissing matches against Toto. But if you've ever listened to a long-form interview with that guy talking about his leadership philosophy, he is all about the decentralization of decisions to experts to own decisions in real time and make them without needing to pass through all these toll gates. And if they're wrong, you celebrate failure. And if they're right, you celebrate success. But either way, you win and die as a team. But you don't slow decision-making. And I just doubt that Ferrari has that culture. And I think your ability to make intraday race day decisions effectively and quickly more than likely has to do with your inability to delegate and decentralize decision-making and do it in a way where it makes people that are at the helm of those decisions confident in what they're doing. Red Bull has clearly got that figured out. They are better in the pits and on race strategy, on average, Mercedes is too, than any other team. And they've built that muscle and that culture over time. And Ferrari just doesn't have it. I'm not saying they can't build it, but they don't have it. And if Bonato is not in a position to help them build it, then he's not the right guy for the job because they have the best car. They have a good car. Now they've got to have a championship team. That's his ultimate, that's his that's his highest use to them right now. It has nothing to do with the engineering, it has everything to do with culture. And he's not passing the test. Well, and I think I totally agree with all that. And the other thing that has stood out to me throughout the season was despite the team spending basically two years to develop a car in anticipation for these rule changes and coming out at the start at the top of the grid. You know, him coming off as things start to waver a little bit, saying, oh, well, we weren't really in it to win this season. We just wanted to be competitive. Again, it kind of goes to that 
that that weak attitude or, or mindset around like their position. And it's like, if you're not going to win now, like who's to say it's going to be next year. Right. I mean, while Red Bull and Mercedes were sitting here fighting a championship battle, you were over here spending your money to develop next year's car. So yeah, it, it just doesn't seem like he has that intensity that, that, um, that Toto and, and, and Christian Horner have. So whether that's not the only way that you have to be in order to be a successful leader. But I mean, I think you're seeing the, the fruits of Bonato's style and approach and um, they're not very sweet. All right. What do you think? Uh, we get into a little bit of team action. All right. Um, so first and foremost, per usual, we'll start at the back of the grid Williams. Uh, and, and the big thing in Silverstone this week was, a lot of teams bringing some pretty significant upgrades. Williams, first and foremost, lot um, largely talked about because upgrades to Albon's car, not to Latifi's, and largely the the pivot being away from a a zero point five side pod. They didn't go as extreme as Mercedes, but they seem to be a little bit more in that direction, reliant on the floor for downforce. And they've subsequently moved much more in the Ferrari Red Bull direction with a more traditional side pod. But interestingly, didn't seem to work out this weekend. Qualifying in the rain, um, um, Albon falling off while Latifi qualifying Q3. Um, and then in the race, I mean, unfortunately, again, Albon crashing out on the on the start. Latifi slowly sliding down the grid into 12 out of what, 14 or 15 in the race. So I don't know what, any takeaways from them in terms of, um, can you read too much into the, the net performance of the package? No, my, my two observations of Williams one, uh, we never got to see the true merit of the upgrades they brought. And so we'll just have to wait another week. Um, who knows if they have enough replacement parts after Albon wrecked all the new shiny parts to put them right back on another car, much less give them to Latifi too. So that'll be an interesting thread with the cost cap. But uh, so we, we don't know the true performance of the upgraded car. Uh, so we'll have to wait. The second is I'm not here for any shine for Nicholas Latifi for his performance of qualifying. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not, I'm just not catch you know, catch a tire window and a wet qualifying and put a decent lap in. Good for you. You made it to Q3. Congratulations. Never done that before. Don't care. Still deserve to be in Formula One. And then congratulations. You slid down to 12th out of 14 cars left on the grid at the end of the race. Clearly, like, you kind of, you are who we thought and suspected you always to be. Uh, I, I want no credit for Latifi for anything he did over the weekend, except for maybe two of his qualifying laps. Uh, I was gonna say I thought we said I, I thought we've said on many occasions wet qualifying wet races hallmark of a great driver seems a little harsh not to give the man any credit. Every blind mouse finds cheese from time to time. I'm happy for him. It in no way changes my view of how much longer he's going to be in this sport, which is not very long. So do you think? Um, so with that perspective, do you think Williams should continue their approach of? only giving Albon upgraded parts. And so they just leave Latifi in whatever car he started the season, a little bit of a, of a control variable. I mean, if you want to take that money and then invest it in the car that you're going to put Oscar Piastri in next year. Uh, yeah, I would say that's a great idea. Uh, for sure. <laughs> I it would be fascinating to see. I will. <laughs> one thing to note, I thought it was hilarious, at least on the, I believe it was the F1 broadcast for qualifying going into Q. I think what was it, it was in Q2. 
And the guy came out and made a phrase like, man, Latifi's going to need a miracle to make it into Q3. And I thought, well, damn, I mean, as much shit as we give the guy, like, I don't think I've ever heard a commentator come out and be so like bleak at the prospect of a driver making it into like the next round of qualifying. Like that seems harsh. And then I thought, I find it hugely ironic that he subsequently got the miracle of a well-timed increase in rain to, to push him into Q3. So uh, a little bit of, a little bit of karma for the commentator there. All right, let's go on to uh, Aston Martin. Um, in terms of their overall performance throughout the week, and I mean, they they had pace early in practice, you know, around 10th place for both drivers, but then they seemed to increasingly struggle throughout the weekend into the race. Vettel, ultimately the one that caused, Al, you know, crashing into the back of Albon, causing his spin and, and a couple of DNFs from other drivers. Um, you know, Vettel finishing... In the points, stroll, not. Um, what's your take on on sort of Aston Martin through the weekend? Do you think, well, one... We... Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, in terms of upgrades, there there have been the one, I think, multiple seasons now, you know, the pink Mercedes, the green Red Bull. Sure, they their case was that they had explored this development track akin to Red Bull's design earlier, you know, prior to the season and didn't choose to move forward with it, but they, they very much seem to have a copy paste model that they're attempting. I mean, have they taken a step back? Do you think this model is successful for them? Uh, I don't know. It seems like they've had wet races basically, uh, or wet qualifying some combination of the two ever since they released the new car. Um, wasn't Canada wet qualifying too? Do I remember that correctly? And Seb also having like pace that then kind of went away in the wet, or was it the opposite in well, Montreal where he no in Montreal it, in it was wet. interesting because he had again good performance in practice, but then when it came to qualifying, just fell off. Very different story. So unclear yeah. as to what's what's really going on there. But I mean, he it, finished it in the points again, and despite a a, a a bad qualifying performance, starting further back. So. Um, yeah, it it seems like somewhat similar to Mercedes to some degree. They've got a car now with that new design that is capable of having real pace. They just haven't made it predictable enough yet. And I think we just saw that again this weekend. They just maybe still need a couple more reps at it. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Well, um, to me, it just seems like one of those things where it's like you didn't build it, so it takes you longer to figure out probably. how it works, right? Like yeah. how to actually optimize it because they're still sort of coming to grips with the the totality of the philosophy on whatever car they're copying. So I, I do think it takes them a little bit longer, but yeah, interesting to see. I mean, notably though, with both Haas cars finishing in the points, Aston Martin has fallen to ninth in constructors, two points behind Haas. So finally they're for sale and for sale, huh? Nothing yeah, like a, nothing like Lawrence, a bargain. Apparently Lawrence Stroll. Well, it's not a bargain to Lawrence Stroll. I think he can get a nice multiple off of it. Uh, apparently they're, I don't know if they're talking, but open to uh, conversations with Audi to be to be sold so well i mean the other one in that i mean the other one in that calculus is red bull though and, and potentially partnering with porsche coming into the 2026 engine um change so well i think i think both can be true i mean i know they're both under volvo ownership but i think audi very much wants to be a full team owner and oem and then porsche just wants to be an engine partner right so yeah. it seems like they could push a make a full push and, and as we've talked about before like that as a possibility, the Andretti as an additional race team. I think, I think the Porsche Audi 
option is far more likely for reasons we've already discussed than than Andretti coming into the the sport still. Namely, dilution of ownership and somebody's rather going to come in with a with an existing infrastructure rather than building your own. So it'll be interesting. Point being, I don't think Lawrence Stroll or Aston Martin have a ton of staying power in this sport, despite any interseason trajectory they may have on car performance. Um, yeah. And I think Stroll's seat is 100% tied to the the prominence of his father in the organization. So would, where... would love to see nothing more than Audi swoop in by that team and put a real driver in that seat, 100%. Yep. Um, all right, let's go to Haas because they had a an eventful weekend, both drivers in the points. Um, let's see, overall in terms of, of qualifying, um, not really impressive on their front, 17th and 19th in qualifying, but slowly climbed up the grid, made up places, safety car worked out in their favor, obviously several other cars moving out of their way due to DNFs. Um, and then even Max taking it, or I'm sorry, uh, Schumacher taking it to Verstappen late in the race, trying to pick up a couple more. But um, w- what's your overall assessment of like where Haas stands actually seeing both drivers finish a race? Does this uh, does this change the calculus on on Mick at all? Does this kind of quiet the the haters at all? Uh, well, first thing I'll say before talking about Mick is uh, Magnuson needs to go play some some slots this week because the, how he made it through that scrum on the opening lap in the, in the, in the home straight, no idea, like no idea how he came clear of that, but he did. You're right. A lot of cars got out of their way. They had a poor qualifying, but also like both guys kept on the track. They played their strategies. Well, like it was, it was well executed across the entire team. Yeah. For Mick look like it's great. Like, Clearly, everybody was happy for him. Mick's a nice guy. People want the Schumacher name in Formula One. Um, but I've said before, like, at the end of the day, the issue with him isn't about he, people believing that at different points in time does he have the talent to perform on the right level. It's about consistency. And so, yeah, Sunday was a big step forward and a huge monkey off his back, and maybe we'll release him to have confidence and perform at that level more consistently. But, again, he has to do it consistently. Uh, and that's just going to take a little more time to prove out. But there's no denying that that Sunday was absolutely huge for him. I also thought that the, to be honest with you, the whole you hear about the whole uh, Seb cheering for him from his car thing. Yeah, he was like trailing night. them and watching the battle. Yeah. And yeah. I actually thought that was a little bit weird. <laughs> if I'm totally honest, I um, mean they're going to play that that whole relationship uh, yeah. up as much as possible constantly, right? Like that's a a strong narrative they're playing. I, the most impressive thing to me is the fact that they still have not brought any upgrades all season. And more or less, they seem to be kind of in a similar position as to where they, they started off like solid midfield, you know, maybe have some yeah, but what does that say about everybody else. <laughs> well, it, and that's, what's been interesting is, is I think you do see situations where teams are bringing upgrades and not necessarily having material success with them. After Aston Martin's a bit of a question mark again, Tough to see with Williams. Did, did that really manifest? Where's Alpha actually moving in 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 the order of the grid? So, so yeah, it's pretty pretty fascinating. So, well, let's let's turn to AlphaTauri because they had a bit of a mixed, a, well, not really a mixed weekend. It, it looked pretty bleak overall. They they per- qualified decently well, eleventh and thirteenth. Both drivers getting caught up in in contact at the beginning of the race pushed them down the order. 
whether it be because they had you know a, a black and orange flag or bringing in Sonoda straight away because of a damaged front wing, but they seem to be making some good progress only ha- only to have it go out the window with sort of Sonoda hearkening back to his over-aggressiveness of, that was characteristic last season, ultimately losing the back end trying to pass Gasly on a corner to sort of hit Gasly's back end and, and spin both drivers out, effectively sort of ending their, their races. But um, I guess any more to take away from that than a little bit of a finishing as a bit of a clown show? It's this... This race was indicative of kind of their broader season, which has been a massive step back from the seasons they've had previous, especially last season. Uh, Sonoda, you just can't do that, man. You just can't do that. That's like the worst sin you can commit is taking an overaggressive line that you can't hold and taking your teammate out as a consequence. You just can't. It just can't happen. And he's been in Formula One long enough to know that. And um yeah, they got a lot of work to do. And I think it's, well, one, the car performance just is not there relative to where it was last season with Gasly sitting in consistent sixth place, right? But yeah, a bit disappointing to see Sonoda do that because car performance aside, he had seemed to sort of remedy a lot of the immature decisions and, and just mistakes that he made last season, which put him in the hot seat. It, he seemed much more measured this season. And, and so it was just unfortunate to to see that, but look, that, that kind of thing is going to creep out every now and again, right? You're not going to flip the switch one season to the next and, and sort of be the, the perfectly mature driver. But it, I think it just goes to show that he's got some, he's got some growing to still do, but um, it, yeah, it is a bit, it is a bit puzzling though. The relative performance of Alpha Tauri versus their parent team, basically Red yeah. Bull. Like that to me is the hard thing to square is like, they've got the same power unit. I similar design philosophy. Yeah. And so there's just things about the chassis and the aero design that aren't shared, obviously between the teams, I guess we just don't know about that are affecting them. But that, that is one of the biggest head scratchers to me that those teams are literally moving in opposite directions of the grid when seemingly you think they would be more correlated. So, yeah, it, it seemed, it seemed more, consistent last season with red bull as a top team and totally again sonoda not really making the cut in terms of performance but gasly being consistently placing where a top three or four car would yeah this season the gap is far wider so not not sure the driver there all right so let's, let's start speeding up we gotta look i don't have a lot to number. add to alfa romeo this week i mean just about yeah. as bad of a weekend as it can get joe serious crash botas gearbox issue dnf Hopefully they come back better next weekend. Uh, Alpine now just six points off McLaren. So with, with Alonzo finishing in front of Norris, they have effectively closed the gap and um, are, are well situated to, to blow by McLaren having two drivers that can seemingly get in the points consistently to, uh, to McLaren's one. So again, McLaren has two drivers. I, I mean, I, I was surprised actually to hear to hear that because it, it seemed like Ricardo was sort of MIA the entire weekend. I thought he had raced in the Formula Two Series race before <laughs> then. Just not shut up. He might be. He might uh, have some more success there. But yeah, I mean, look, Alpine storming ahead surging. here. I, I think it, McLaren. I don't see how, how they hold them back, given what what Ricardo is doing weekend and week out. So I think it's inevitable. I agree with the positive points on Alpine, but I will confess to cheering very loudly when Ocon 
overtook Max and subsequently, like literally immediately afterwards, after his engineer congratulated him, his car just completely crapped out. I love, I just love <laughs> seeing Ocon eat shit like that in a very ironic way. Uh, but love to see the surge in performance of, of the team, mostly because Alonzo's on it. I'm really fond of Alonzo, but yeah. You know, I do think it's ironic and, and I, and I will chalk it up to possibly your ignorance, but, um, doing a bit more research on, on some of the drivers as, as much shit as you give the paid drivers, anyone who hasn't looked into to Ocon's background, um, I, I think you should, because he probably, you know, much like Lewis has a tremendous story in which his family sacrificed everything and like went from oh, race we to race, Here's the bleeding heart went from race to race in a trailer, Pre- like preached to me. Went race to race in a trailer, pinning their entire family's like hopes on Ocon's racing career and ultimately worked out for him. So I, I think after reading a lot of that, I, I'm I'm a little bit more supportive of him and, and favorable of Alpine as a as a complete team with being an Alonzo supporter, but also pulling for Ocon and and his ultimate story. So, look, if you want to shit on a guy who whose family sacrificed everything and came to nothing to to make their way in F1 that that's on you you know you you can be a a paid driver backer if you want to but I'm not here for your Ocon shit talk anymore that's fine all right speaking of shit talk uh McLaren Lando let me add him great start um Ricardo again wasn't even sure he was in the race uh finished qualif didn't make it out of Q1 back of the grid I think barely beat Sonoda who had again had a pit for a new wing and hit his own teammate and spun out. So I don't think Ricardo could have done any less in the race, but um, I don't know. Before I let you weigh in, I got to say I am. And look, I guess it makes sense given the commentary of, of Norris clearly fighting Alonzo or Alpine for points, but I just find it so tiring and you see it a bunch last season as well. Like anytime Norris comes up in a battle against, Hamilton or someone else, it's always just wave them through. I can't tell you the number of times I hear him say, Oh, that's not his race. And, and so it's just, I don't know. I, I don't think, you know, the drivers did as part of their whole like press this weekend, estimating where they thought their like team driver would be in terms of F1, the game stats. I don't think you can give any credit to, to Norris in wheel to wheel racing given the fact that he constantly just lets better drivers through despite having great qualifying performances. He's just always sort of racing himself. I I find it sad that you never actually really see him in a ton of great battles. This year, maybe because he's not up, he's not up the grid, but like, I don't know. I mean, he he didn't really have a chance to battle Alonzo because they gave up track position with a bad pit strategy and most of the year, other than that, he's just kind of been humdrumming in the midfield. So I guess that's what sucks is you know he can do it. But like some, anytime he's yeah. up against like another great driver, it's always like, well, wave this guy through. We'll wait for the next one further back. And it just never seems to Couldn't you play out all that of, much. Could you accuse him of being a little bit defeatist this year? Sure. But like, I don't think it's egregious. I don't think he's undermining the team. Well, I think it's only going to get worse when they realize they get passed by Alpine because he doesn't have a, a teammate to propel the them any issue. further forward. Like, Lando's not the issue. It's that they're paying a driver probably more than $20 million a year to 
basically be completely irrelevant. We've said this before. I'll say it again. The root issue of Ricardo seems to be he does not know how to point that car in high-speed turns. That is what Silverstone is full of. That is his weakness over Lando. It was on full display. He, he cannot figure it out. How many more times are we going to have press conferences where Ricardo comes in and says, I'm still searching for answers? Like, he says he feels something that the team cannot validate in data. He says he feels a lack of grip in high-speed terms, t- turns, and the team cannot validate what he's feeling or solve for it with data, which means that what he is not feeling is not, that what he's feeling is not real. And he's just not, I'm not saying that he's totally lost as a driver, but he's not the right fit for the car. Both of those things matter. And they're not going to build the car for him because they have Lando. So look, and I, and I question whether he's got another F1 team opportunity out there, given the dr- young driver market that exists and the pent up kind of energy there is from lower formulas. So I think it's smartest move, honestly. And I mean this, I know I've joked about the, the IndyCar thing in the past, but McLaren has a massive presence in American motorsports series. Zach Brown has tons of connections. I think that's the best possible move for him is to just go be a headline name in an American motor series, probably IndyCar for the next five, six years. I mean, in America, he's like one of everybody's favorite drivers anyway. So, I mean, he'd be the perfect brand ambassador. Could help them build the McLaren brand across shores and other sport and other leagues, which is arguably as valuable as the brand work they're trying to do. That's the smartest possible thing Zach Brown could do is put put Ricardo in an Amer- in the American IndyCar team and then bring in an American into the Formula One team who can actually race. And they will literally be America's darling team. Like, no question. Like, make your layups, man. Like yep. I Yeah. We'll makes, see if they have the makes performance sense, makes business sense. We'll uh we'll yeah. see if it happens. So I think we've talked about Red Bull and Ferrari a lot. Let's just cover off off Mercedes because I mean, great showing by Hamilton in particular. Russell obviously out straight away, so not much to observe there, but didn't have a stellar qualifying performance. Um, Overall, Hamilton sort of having a series of successes here. The team overall a bit still in, in no man's land. They're 131 points up on McLaren, who's, you know, prone to falling further back in the grid and, while not insurmountable, they're 61 points off of Ferrari. So barring any, I guess, highly likely screw-ups on Ferrari's behalf, it's a big gap to close, but but they have a chance to do it. You know, Russell is fifth in points, just 18 points above Hamilton. Like, But I'm curious, what's your take on, one, the team's progress going into these more traditional tracks, and then also to Hamilton's success? Do you think they've sort of removed him from guinea pig duties and kind of even the playing field on parts and, or, or what else is, is driving his resurgence here? I'm going to tell you right now, had Russell and I gotten involved in that crash at the very beginning of that race, they would have beat Ferrari on points in that race on the basis of Ferrari's idiotic strategy decisions. And if the trajectory of the season continues, Mercedes is going to beat Ferrari and the constructors. I mean, I know that this track was smooth High-speed turns fit the profile of the Mercedes car, but clearly their upgrades to the floor into the rear wing helped. They're getting better. They're making the car more predictable. It's not going to work on every track, but they're making it work on more tracks more frequently, and they are a bet. They are a championship team who are trying to turn their car into a championship car, and they have two very much championship drivers. They're going to beat Ferrari and the constructors 
on this trajectory is my belief based on the circuits we have left. Um, and I was happy for Hamilton. It seems like, like, put, you know, put, put him in a corner, tell him he's washed up and he just keeps coming right back. And it was a gutsy performance. I think without the safety car, he probably catches signs and gets second in that race. Uh, because I, of the I was putting him, had. I was putting him for first in that race. I, if, I, toss if, up depending on how quick he gets Leclerc. behind. Yeah. Depending on how quick he got by signs, the life of his tires and, and uh, yeah, I, I would not have seen it as surprising for him to, to pass Leclerc at all. Look, they may, they may be in no man's land still and the constructors standing, but they're not in no man's land on the track and they're a better team. And if Ferrari doesn't get their shit together quick, they're going to lose to Mercedes. And they're going to be right where they were in last year's constructor standings uh, after winning the f- opening race of the year. And that is good. That, you want to talk about the reasons Bonatos is going to get fired? He might not get for our, fired if they lose to Red Bull, but if they give it up to Mercedes, he's definitely getting fired. <laughs> yep. I, yeah, uh, Rightly so. Well, so I think this feeds in interestingly to some of the look ahead to, to Austria. But real quickly, personal podium, DNF of the week. Who do you have on your podium? Uh, my, you know what? I'm going to go back to the FIA, the FIA, uh, in my tradition of naming non-drivers on my personal podium. I think the FIA deserves a lot of credit. I'm here for it. We want to boo them when they suck, but I want to tip my hat when they do their jobs and they very much did their jobs. Mulvoy's this, this weekend. So full accountability, recognize the success, scrutinize the failures, a good week on their book. Equal opportunity, criticizer and praiser over here. Uh, signs and Perez are the next two for me. Um, you got to credit signs. Look, like I said earlier, he didn't win the race, but he did push back on the team and he was right. He called a shot. He won the race. He deserves credit for that. And then, yeah, Perez storming through the field. He he looked like he was driving a rocket ship after they replaced his front wing. Also, no credit to, from anyone on this, but Red Bull, I would love to see a stat of pit total time in pits when a front wing is replaced for full tires and a wing. Red Bull did that shit in like 10 seconds. It was so fast. Not that it mattered because Perez was already in the back of the pack that much, but like very efficient stop, got him back on it. He hammered it, was faultless for the rest of the race, obviously arguing his two, you know, potentially pushing people off the track, but he put his nose in there. Yeah, I I, I put him up there. I mean, he was voted driver today, so that's got to mean something, <laughs> even though it really means nothing. Yeah. What about you? For me, I have Haas. I, you know, America's team has arrived. Uh, no, oh, it's no. Uh, <laughs> full bandwagon. Let's oh, go, baby. <laughs> no, it's it's great to see. I mean, they've been kind of knocking at the door all season, had had one driver there at times. Yes, Magnuson got tremendously lucky on the start, but some got lucky, some were unlucky. But um, I think it just showed the the sort of potential that they have when all of the, the pieces, the strategy, the driver, the the reliability all come together and and hopefully there's more of that to to come and have another good team there in the midfield um all right dnf for the week yes for stappen uh candidly because gerald every time i see his name in the press he reminds me of why i love my father <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez, what, what what is it this time i don't understand well they, they they somebody released a quote and i don't even know if the interview was recent but they just republished the quote of him basically, of Verstappen basically saying, 
my dad didn't think I was going to be a world champion. He just kept telling me I was going to be a truck driver or a bus driver. And I'm like, dude, that's not like coaching. That's straight up abuse. <laughs> like Earl Woods was like sleeping and cheating on his wife in trailers, like next to his son's driving range sessions. And he wasn't even that abusive verbally. <laughs> like, like that is so absurd that he would say that to his son. Like I, Yost Verstappen is a problem. Like, hey, it takes like we were saying, different leadership styles can be equally as successful. I think you see Mr. Hamilton, you see Mr. Verstappen and they have two championing championship winning sons. So, you know, whatever, whatever works, I guess. All right. Well, that was a deep cut. Um, I guess I'll just take it to a more traditional stance. Look, I'm going to just shit on everybody here because I got plenty of people Um, coming off of coming off of Montreal when I had lots to rip on people on track. I I needed to source other perspectives. I think for me, it was one Sonoda this week, kind of a step back. Can't do that again. Um, Stefan Dominicali, let's give people when they come out of the hospital, regardless of a clean bill of health, a couple minutes to settle you know give them some space and lastly already said it the british media and fans get your shit together you're you're embarrassing yourself both from your lack of objectivity and your inability to let shit go um hopefully this is a turning point um all right let's do a quick look ahead i don't think there's a a ton to talk about with i mean there could be but let's let's round this out we talked a little bit about the relative performance of the teams I think historically you saw Red Bull really good in sort of low speed corners, um, not quite the engine power, maybe arguably better reliability at points, but they were so they were good early in last season, but then ultimately Mercedes, I think with a more balanced package, particularly one with, with better engine performance sort of ran away later in the season and to the point of how they'll perform relative to Ferrari. I think you're right. I think that that better balance in a car design and seemingly a better development program, I think you'll see a similar dynamic of them sort of catch and surpass Ferrari going into the rest of the season. But as we look at Austria in particular, not so many, an interesting balance of there's about three straights on the track, but they're not as long as as straights that you see at other tracks. Turn one and turn three are both pretty slow speed turning going into straights. And then there's a sort of mix of medium to relatively fast corners throughout the the middle and, and second half of the, the track. Um, you know, from my standpoint, I think, again, I think Mercedes will do quite well. It seems like they've made gains and this being sort of a, a well-balanced track, I, I think they'll perform well throughout the entirety of it, particularly throughout those middle sectors and those medium to high speed corners. I think with the, the the change in philosophy or design with Red Bull this year, I think they'll, they'll do well with the number of straights that they've had. and um, But the straights aren't long enough, I think, for them to truly maximize their, their low drag um, package. While Ferrari, I think, will, will benefit a lot from some of the slow speed corners and being able to throttle hard out of the turns, a little bit better torque, downforce. I think it'll ultimately come to one Verstappen is just a machine on this track. I mean, I don't know how you don't put your money on Verstappen this week, given I think what he's three in a row here a couple of years ago, basically ended Gasly's time with Red Bull by lapping his teammate 
I mean, he, you just can't bet against him on this track. And I think ultimately we'll, we'll surpass Ferrari as they deal with some tire degradation, being over-reliant on exit, exit acceleration, trying to keep that gap up before the, the straights while I think Red Bull ultimately sits behind them, lets the tires degrade and, and makes a pass later in, in a given stint. But what's this your, is, what's your this, thoughts? Is, this, this is where we're going to find out how many of Mercedes gains last week were track specific versus upgrade to the car. Uh, and I think that we're going to find out a lot of it was just the car got better. I, I think this is going to be a scenario. I don't know where Perez is going to be. Max will likely run off and then we'll see if Mercedes can pass Ferrari and we'll see how much Ferrari trouble Ferrari is really in is kind of my view of it. Now that's my sensible prediction. It's not my bold prediction because I have a much bolder prediction. All right. Let's hear your bold prediction. Bring us home. You ready? I, I don't know. I, after a couple of takes today, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready, but let's let's hear it. Fernando Alonso wins. An Alonso win. Alonso win. My philosophy is none of the straights are long enough for anybody to overtake. Alpine will luck their way into track position through one means or the other. Late in the race, Alonso's been nipping at the heels of fourth, fifth, sixth. I think he will luck his way into track position late in the race and hold on for his life and win the Austrian Grand Prix. Wow. That is in an that, Alpine. That is indeed bold. Um, all right. Wow. Well, I definitely can't top that. Um, I think my sensible prediction is once again, I think Norris, I, I go with, I think Norris finishes in the top five. Ricardo doesn't make it out of Q1 once again. Um, in terms of a bit more bold, I, I think I, I had a similar thought of either Norris or Alonso being on podium. I think the the Alpine has the car right now. While I don't think McLaren has a car, Norris has done tremendously well at this track. So I, I think both of them have a good chance to to perform quite well this next weekend. A lot of gravel. A lot of room for DNFs. A lot of room. Only time will tell. Maybe some rain. I mean, we've had some particular rain qualifying as of late so anything could happen all right graham i think that about does it for us gee always a pleasure my man we covered a lot of ground tonight and we'll be back uh just one week from one week from now with uh hopefully less than a week (laughs) as we've been told by our producer yes hopefully several days less than (laughs) get your shit together and record on a monday sir yes sir yes sir next All right, my friend. I'll talk to you then. See you, bud.